DC author Iona Wishaw joins us at the Collier Public Library tonight for reading from the latest book in the Lane Winslow mystery series that she writes and to chat with the Collier Public Library book club. reading now from um, an old, uh, sorry, not an old cold grave, A Lethal Lesson, which is my most recent book. And um, I'll just do the little setup. Uh, Lane Winslow has uh, found out that no one has turned up at the school to, um, Noah's turned up at the school to teach the children. And so she tries to phone the house where the teacher lives and there's no answer. So she becomes quite concerned. There's been very, very bad snow and um, she's a bit worried about the teacher. So she goes down to the house and uh, right in the beginning of the book, she finds the teacher almost unconscious and the house has been torn apart. And um, she has, because the telephone in the house doesn't work and she doesn't know if the neighbors have phones at all, uh, she has to bring this nearly unconscious woman into the hospital. And now she's going to report to Darling, her husband, the inspector of the Nelson police. Um, so she goes into the police station uh, and uh, Sergeant O'Brien's there and uh, he says, shall I call the inspector or will you go up? Uh, Thanks, Sergeant O'Brien. I'll go up if that's all right. I think I have come about a crime. O'Brien peeled himself off his usual stool and gallantly opened the gate for her. Upstairs to your right, he said unnecessarily. Before Lane had become the wife of Inspector Darling, she'd had a number of occasions to make the same trip over various cases. He watched her go up the steps and shook his head. She really was the most beautiful woman. He looked over at Terrell, who was occupying his corner desk, writing a report. She's at it again, was all O'Brien said, and then he pulled the newspaper out from under the file he kept handy to make himself look busy. Lane found both Sergeant Ames and Inspector Darling in Darling's office, conferring over a document that lay between them on the desk. Ames leapt up at her knock, smiling happily. Mrs. Miss Winslow, good morning. He consulted his watch. Oh, it's just gone afternoon. Good afternoon. Darling rolled his eyes. Ames was an absolute slave to his wife. He wondered if Ames would ever get over his eager puppy reaction whenever he saw her. He too rose and said, Ames was just leaving. Ames picked up the document and waved it cheerfully. I was actually just leaving, I mean. With what be almost a slight bow, Ames left them. You know, you shouldn't come around getting him all riled up like that. It'll take all afternoon for him to settle back to work. Darling waved at the empty chair and sat down himself, an expression of concern settling on his face. Why on earth have you driven all the way up to town in this snow? Not that I'm not ecstatic to see you. It's been all lost dogs around here. Well, something has rather happened. Rather happened by the expression on your face, I'd said it was a good deal worse than that. I do so hope you've not come to tell me someone has turned up dead. Well, not quite dead, no. It's Miss Scott, the retiring teacher from the Balfour School. I went down to the teacher's cottage to see if everything was all right and I found her unconscious and the other teacher, the new one is gone. There was no car. I'm pretty sure Miss Scott had a car. 
Lane shook her head, realizing at once that the lack of tracks or footsteps in the new snow made it less likely that there'd been a car. Then where was Miss Keeling? Anyway, I managed to get her back to the hospital because their phone line had been cut and she'd passed out. Oh dear, I'm sorry, I'm speaking all in a jumble. I'm quite flustered about poor Miss Scott. I do hope she'll be all right. It's hard to believe that such a beautiful woman could be such a harbinger of misfortune, darling sighed. He got up and went to the door. Ames, get in here, bring your chair and a notebook. You know, you're fulfilling every exaggerated complaint I make. First, you're producing a serious crime just as lunchtime is approaching, destroying one of the bright spots of the day. And you're here about a nearly dead person. With your track record, that poor woman has probably died on the operating table by now. So that's just a little flavor of the relationship between Darling and Ames and Lane. Thank you for reading that. My pleasure. Their relationship is just so comical. I really have been enjoying between Ames and, and Darling. It's quite, it's quite funny. Oh, good. I'm glad you enjoy it. The, the, the jury's sometimes out on that. I was taxed very early on by someone uh, who'd had a number of cocktails, I will say, um, <laughs> very upset about uh, how mean Darling was. But more recently, I was speaking to a room that had three or four English people in it, and they all immediately understood what kind of relationship they had. So it must be a kind of English thing, this kind of semi, you know, I mean, he's not abusive, but you know, he's a little sarky with Ames for sure. <laughs> oh, and when watching uh, English uh, detective shows and stuff like that, there's definitely exactly what, how you portrayed them in your book. Yeah, that hierarchical thing I think does exist for sure. And it's the 1940s, you know, hierarchy is king i'm sure at that time <laughs> and lane is modeled after your mom she's inspired by my mom for sure mm -hmm. for sure and Can a lot more of about that? That, sorry i was just gonna say a lot of the things that she's done uh over the books uh are taken uh, in some way right out of my mom's life you know, in the last book, she rescues a woman who's who's been badly beaten by her husband and gets her away. Well, that's an actual story that happened to me when I was 12 and we were living in Mexico and we went in the middle of the night to save somebody who had been beaten by her husband and drove all night to Texas to get her safe. So, you know, these are the kinds of there's lots of things in the books that are things that are definitely inspired by the kind of woman my mother was. And where did your mom grow up in Canada? No, no, she's English. Both my parents are English. And in fact, oh, they okay. grew up in Latvia uh, in, a, in, a, in an English community. So my mother grew up speaking Russian, French, German, uh, Latvian with equal facility to English. Oh, similar to Lane for sure. It sounds quite parallel. Yeah, well, exactly. It's very handy to have all those languages. Yeah, anyone that's listening or watching from the book club, if you want to put your questions in the chat, we can make sure they're answered. Um, you, did you always lived in British Columbia? Uh, not always. I was born in Kimberley and then lived in this community that I portray as King's Cove uh, when I was a very small child. 
uh, and um, I, uh, I think when I was about five, my father was a geologist, so he was always away. So uh, he went to Mexico and my mother said, well, we're going to Mexico. So she parked my brother in a school here in Vancouver. He's 10 years older than I am. And uh, we drove to Mexico. And from then on, my life was driving, you know, living in Mexico for the bulk of the year and then living up here during the sort of late spring, summer into the early fall. And one of those trips was all the way to Nicaragua, um, but mostly it was Mexico. And then when I was about 13, we actually, he got a job that allowed him to be in an office in Arizona. So I lived in Tucson all through high school, uh, junior high and high school. And then I came back to British Columbia after I went to college in Ohio. <laughs> That's quite the lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, well, it must it must really straighten out your uh, your stories. Like it really must have a great huge input. All the places you've been to. It would be fun, actually. I, I've never written a story yet that takes place in Mexico, so that's kind of interesting. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Do you um? Did you always want to be a writer? I mean, you mean you got stories from your 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 childhood and everything, and all over. But did you always want to be a writer, or did you have your eye on a different career as a kid? Like, um, I had my eye on a number of careers, uh, but I always wanted to write because my mother was a writer, and uh, you know, uh, my whole childhood when I wasn't outside playing on the railway tracks, I'm not making this up parents never knew where their children were in those days, um, was the sound of the typewriter, you know, clickety clack. Um, and uh, so I, I had it in my mind that I wanted to write and I absolutely loved to read in my very, very mixed up schooling where I went to three, four, in one case, five different schools during any given school year. Um, my one solid thing was reading. And so, uh, you know, I think I always, gravitated to that but obviously when I was young I wanted to be a ballet dancer and then uh you know an archaeologist and then um I um I had a child and and so then it was a question of making a living so I became a teacher uh which really turned out to be all the work I did over the years with kids as a teacher and a youth worker and then a teacher again uh really I felt guided there because it was truly my true love. Um, so, you know, I just was lucky to fall into the exact right thing. And I really, you know, I took a master's degree in writing at UBC during my forties when I was much older than most of the people there. And I didn't, besides Henry and the cow problem, thank you for having that. Uh, <laughs> I didn't really put it to use and I never expected I would be able to write a whole entire book. So these books I started writing when I was 64. Oh, and wow. I only say that because it is never too late. That's awesome. Uh, one of our uh, patrons has asked you, um, do your characters ever change direction as you're writing them in your stories? as I'm going along. Yes. Uh, that's, uh, that's interesting because it's very tied into the actual 
process of writing. Uh, so maybe I can just, uh, for the writers among you there, or the would-be writers, uh, I can talk just a little bit about that. Typically, when I sit down every morning to, to write, um, and I sort of devote a couple of hours a day to that, you know, the composition part, right? Uh, like right now, I've got a book that my editor is now saying you have to do all these. So uh, most of the days from now on in are going to be about working with the next book that's coming out. Uh, but in the morning, I'll always compose new things. So I never really know what's going to happen. Uh, sometimes I've left myself a little tagline that says, you know, the next thing you're going to write is something about this. But I don't pre-plot my books. And so as a result, it is really uh, me discovering as I go along what's happening. So, um, you know, I could go in with an idea about what I think is going to happen and it just might not feel right. So at that point, I might go, no, this has to happen. So at that point, you know, my characters could, could change direction and do something completely different. Um, and I try to just stay open to that because, I, you know, at my age, I'm writing because I love the creative process. So I want to write in a way that is most uh, enjoyable to me. Um, and that, that is, that constant discovery and, uh, you know, always asking, is this plausible? How can I make it plausible? You know, it's, it's all part of a, of, a, of a thing. So characters could do, I guess the answer to this is characters could do just about anything uh, when I sit down to write them, except go out of character. Mm. But that's human, I mean, how, often do actual humans go out of their own character. They'd have to be an extremist to do it, really. Yeah. Iona, I have two questions from the group. Yep. The first question is, did you have a plan for a romantic relationship between Lane and Inspector Darling from book one on? Okay, so let's look at that because um, I am a horrendous romantic, I have to confess. Um, and I had no plans for that, but Lane has caught in the first book, you know, Lane and her irritating neighbor find a dead body plugging up a creek. Mm -hmm. And so Lane does the right thing. She phones the police and the police in the form of Darling and Ames come out. And as soon as I began to describe Darling, I remember exactly what it was. It was his charcoal eyes and his hair was for her, maybe because she's just come out of the war and she's used to very short military cuts, her hair, his hair seemed slightly too long. And at that moment, I think I, I, I sort of went, uh-oh, I think something could happen here. So it was something about how I was writing Darling. And then of course, Ames you know, chimes in with, uh, uh, you know, Darling gets, uh, wants her phone number and doesn't want her to leave the province sort of thing. Um, and on the way back up to the car, Ames sort of says, good job, sir, you got her phone number or something because Ames has <laughs> absolutely like no respect. Uh, in some ways, right? Um, and, and I thought, yeah, no, it, Ames has read the situation exactly. And I thought it was unique how his name was Darling, like <laughs> how you even would say it, Inspector Darling, you know? 
Uh, there's actually a little bit of a story behind that, my, if I can. My mother um, was uh, highly adventurous, uh, and she herself actually did a spot of spying, which I didn't know until really near the end of her life. Um, and uh, one of the times my father was away for some interminable period, she decided uh, to hitchhike to Alaska with uh, interstate truckers. <laughs> and so, you know, she left me, I was about three and my brother who was about 12 in the care of a, uh, a nice old lady called Mrs. Clements and disappeared. And she packed a very small bag with useful things for going to Alaska. Uh, including an evening gown um, for which she had no shoes because she would wear her tennis shoes uh, for that evening. And I don't know, I think because of the circles she was in, I never really learned this story, but she did meet someone quite well known at the time, an ecologist, an English ecologist called Frank Fraser Darling who happened to be doing a lot of research up in Alaska just when my mother went there. And so she met him and was quite fascinated by him and used to tell us stories of, you know, having met Frank Fraser Darling. And that name just really stuck with me, you know, that someone could be called Darling to me was wonderful. Of course, there's Peter Pan as well, I know. But um, anyway, so I think that's why it came up. And of course, there's always the um, every, you know, she and he both call each other darling, so it can be quite, you know, you have to remember not to capitalize the uh, affectionate <laughs> darling. Yeah, exactly. Good question from Anna. Oh, we have one more question. Um, do you use a bookshelf in your mind to organize your thoughts like your main character does in, in the book? <laughs> I'm sorry to say that my mind is perhaps a little less organized than that, but I do have enormous trust. So this goes back to the business of writing again. Uh, I have an enormous trust that what I need will come to me. Um, because you know, really what you do is you set your brain going on thoughts and you may not be conscious of them all the time. You know, I don't go to bed with my characters talking in my ear or anything, but they're whirring around in there, you know? And, um, so one of the tricks I have with writing is that I never, ever backspace or erase anything while I'm writing it. You know, so I might write a sentence and I might think, oh, my God, that's really dumb. That's going to look pretty dim on the page. But I refuse to erase it. You know, I plow forward. And the reason for that is that um, uh, I think if you start doing that, if you start thinking that's not very bright, that's not going to work. You know, you start second guessing yourself, your brain actually begins to kind of shut down a little bit. You know, it says, oh, well, you don't want that. I just sent you this good idea. You don't want that, you know, so 
you know, you get into a bit of a quarrel about what should go on the page. So this way, I just accept everything that comes. I put it on the page and I don't make any evaluation of it until the next day, because you can't actually see whether what you wrote is a hopeless, god awful cliche that your editor is going to go after the minute she sees it or something actually quite brilliant. Like you really don't know. So uh, so that is. Um, I think it's not an organized thing, but it, it organizes itself and I trust what it's doing. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And also whenever I get stuck, oh my God, even if I get up and walk to the kitchen and back again, it will immediately loosen the log jam, right? So if I'm seriously stuck at white, and I do, because I don't pre-plot, I can type along for about a third of a book or even as much as a half of a book. And then I'm like stuck. Like, you know, I'm gonna have to bring all these disparate things I've written together. And how is that gonna happen? And um, uh, I don't know if you know the old designation, you're either a plotter or a pantser. And a pantser is someone who goes by the seat of their pants. But when I get <laughs> in this situation, my husband says, oh, oh, pants are on fire. Um, <laughs> so, but I'll go for a walk in my little local forest here and it'll just, you know, I'm ready to go for the next day. And I still won't know. I didn't know this morning what I was going to write at all. I had no idea, but it was there for me. So... We have I'm another question, organized, but I'm not. <laughs> Our next question is, um, how much research do you have to do? Uh, quite a lot. I remember listening to um, uh, Ian Rankin describing his writing process. And he is uh, more of a pantser than a plotter. He says he doesn't pre-plot anything. He just writes and uh, goes along and builds the story and sees what happens. And one of the things he does is if it's something he needs to know, something concrete that requires research, what he does is he writes through it because he doesn't wanna stop the flow and then he'll go back and research it. I can only do that if I feel like what I'm gonna write uh, is going to make sense even after I do the research, if you see what I'm saying. Um, because I don't want to absolutely make stuff up, but some things you can assume are a certain way and you could go ahead and write it. And then I may do the research and go, oh, it can't be like that. But typically I do stop uh, and look things up. And I'm always surprised and interested. I was looking up Nazi espionage in South Africa today, and I was very interested in that because the espionage episode in my mother's life took place in South Africa. And she was, because she was a perfect speaker of German, she was pretending to be a German girl and you know, a young woman and was seeking to get information from German officers and so on, you know, before the Germans were actually kicked out of there. But the Nazi espionage can sit, continued for quite a long time. So I needed something like that. Um, when I was doing the research for uh, a sorrowful sanctuary about the um, uh, Sudetenland refugees that came to the Peace River uh, Valley in the 
in the 19 in 1939 um i actually found a first person book by one of the first settlers there who talked about arriving and what the life was like and so on um when i was doing research uh for the home children which was in book three an old cold grave uh again i found this wonderful book uh, of a social worker uh, in british columbia who'd collected um you know gone around and interviewed as many home children as she could find and some of them in the 1970s were were over 80 and you know it was a very touching beautiful place to get that human sense of what it was like and for me you know it's the human sense of the life they're living and the time they're living in that is the most important to me um you know i i'm not I am focused on solving the murder, of course, but I'm also focused on the lives of the people, you know, and who they are quite a bit in my books, I think. That's and what I liked about what I read. I read the first book. I'm dying to get the rest of them. Um, and your style of writing really does infuse all of the characters with a very um, fully formed uh, personality, like, and in, in, if, you know, and it's got to be difficult, though, to, you know, for every new story you write, you bring in some new characters to keep those individual, like, how do you keep them all individuals? They've, they've all got beautiful, incredible personalities and storylines of their own. Like, is that has got to be hard to do. I mean, I, I have difficulty keeping my own kids in separate packages in my well, head. I know, I know, I know, exactly. <laughs> um, I, um, uh, I, I had very good guidance when I was actually getting my master's at UBC. My prof, who was the 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 master's, um, you know, you produce a book of something. So I produced a book of short stories, uh, who was guiding me through that process, said to me one time that how you get to know your characters is by how they behave. And that really stuck in my mind. So I, I try to avoid a lot of explanation about who people are. I just want you to see them behave and talk and uh, hope by that means that they will be individual. And um, it's mostly work. Part of it is because I have pillaged some people from my childhood who were already uh, absolutely ancient when I knew them at the age of three, four, and five. Um, <laughs> but I created completely different backstories for them, right? Um, the house where the Hugheses live exists and is still a stunningly beautiful house. Um, and the lady, ladies who live there um, were real characters. I mean, just absolutely amazing. And, uh, you know, it wasn't one woman and two daughters. It was one woman and one daughter. Um, but, you know, I just made up totally uh, intriguing backstories for them. So, you know, once I had the characters, I don't know, I just... You know, you go along and you get what you need. I, 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 you know, but recently I was writing and I had kind of a mainish character. And I really was struggling with, you know, who is this man actually, you know, and I had to read through the manuscript to see if I could find that one honest moment where it was really him. And, you know, it, it was just, I was, I was spending too much time constructing him. 
you know, and I needed to just see him doing something spontaneous. And there was one point where he actually leaps in to work with Lane to, to save herself and get the bad guy. And it, I, I realized in that moment, that's who that person is, right? And, and so, um, you know, I would have to backtrack and see if I can relax him a little bit into being himself. So again, I don't know if I'm even remotely answering your questions, but it is all about what they say and how they behave. I will say that. Do you have a list of the bios of each person and kind of at each time you add a little bit about their life? So this is all in your head. It's all in my head because uh, I would go, uh, this again goes back to, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm getting on and I don't want to spend a lot of time doing stuff I don't enjoy. And, you know, collecting, there are, there is some information I'll collect, like in my writing program, there's a research place. And, you know, if I'm looking at the structure of a Lancaster bomber, I can move a, 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 a kind of schematic of that bomber into my research area. And I'll have it there if I need it, right? Um, or any other of those kinds of external things that I need to maybe get right enough. And um, uh, I think if I spent hours thinking about who characters were, I mean, that's time I could be spending writing the story. So again, I usually find out as I'm going along by what they say and how they behave and what kinds of dilemmas they're in. And if those are gonna be recurring characters, um, I, uh, you know, I will just build on that as I go and make sure that those characteristics that were there, because they really live in my mind. And I think it's because, you know, I spent my whole working life working with, individual, with individuals. I did work with people. You know, so I think uh, that may be something that helps me get a strong sense of individuals. Very cool. Um, the cover art is just so beautiful in all these books. Um, in the on the back, they show these other three. Did you have a say in the the art or the illustrations or anything? You know, one of the wonderful, wonderful things about being with a not giant publisher like Touchwood, is that you do get a say in a lot of things. And, uh, you know, they'll send me, uh, the, the artist is uh, Margaret Hansen. She's been with the series right from the beginning. And, uh, you know, they're all fabulous, you yeah. know, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. And they, 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 they will send a, a picture and say, this is what we're thinking. First, the question is, we're thinking of this scene, this scene, or this scene, what do you think? And I'll say, you know, I really imagined the cover being one of those three scenes, because usually people are on the same page about that. So then she'll do up a little drawing or a sketch, and I'll say, you know, um, I want this truck to look more like this, and so on and so forth. Um, so I do get a part in it. Um, but only a little bit of guidance. Like one of the things I loved about this cover, uh, which is the latest one, is um, that building there uh, is the spitting image of the now long gone post office in the tiny community where I spent my childhood. Uh, I, I don't know how Margaret did that, but it's, you know, so when I look at this, I'm seeing that space. 
you know, it's absolutely amazing to me. I love it. So yeah, you know, I, I do get a say. I got a say in who did the reading for my audiobooks. You know, we got to audition 11 different readers and, uh, you know, pick one. And I think for the really huge publishers, they don't. The publishers pick the person and the writer is not involved. Mm -hmm. So I think I've been, I think I'm incredibly lucky. <laughs> I'd have to agree with you there because too many people want control, I guess, but it's nice to have that, that option of your very own. Yeah, because you, you created it, right? But those, those covers are just stunning. Every last one of them. It's really great, great, uh, great work. They, and they attract people, you know, yes. it's interesting, like they're on our, our BC fairies, you know, whatever the latest book is on their little reading thing. And people do pick, I mean, you know, this is my type of book for starters. So if I'm yeah, in a library yeah. or in a bookstore yeah. and I see this, I'm picking it up. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because I can tell right away it's something I want to read. Yeah. So, yeah, no, no, she's the spirit of it. She's been unbelievable. In the first book, um, Inspector Darling refers to him being Amos and his boss was um, Mr. Our Inspector McDonald. Is there a story about him? Uh, I haven't done much with Inspector McDonald, um, but I wanted to just suggest that Darling himself was a subordinate in that police station. Um, you know, before McDonald uh, retired. And, um, you know, it comes up again in a match made for murder because uh, in the 30s, Darling is still very young and uh, in the late 30s and, 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 and kind of the underling where this particular sergeant moves on and becomes the assistant chief of police in uh, Tucson, Arizona. So, you know, um, I think I might've mentioned McDonald there. You know, I never know if I'm gonna bring people back. Like, um, I, I don't know how many of my books you've read, but there's a, a Russian spy who was a friend of her father's uh, called Aptikar, and I was gonna use him once and he's come up three times and I don't know if he's not going to come up again and he's retired now so <laughs> you know I just I like people and I just keep going with them in fact I based almost the whole of the um it begins in betrayal on up to car and his desperate attempt to oh, escape oh not it begins in betrayal uh, a deceptive devotion sorry now we're just showing off covers look at that <laughs> It's unbelievable. I don't know, you know, there's a point there, uh, a point that juts out into the water and the lake. And again, Margaret has magically captured something that looks exactly like the point on Kootenai Lake in that oh, bay. Uh, absolutely amazing. Anyway, all right, I'll shut up now. Come on. <laughs> We're enjoying this so much. <laughs> Do you think you'll write another children's book? You know, it's funny, I wrote uh, several children's books after that one did well that I quite liked. And I sent them to Annick who published the Henry book mm -hmm. and they were sort of ho-hum about it. And I sort of understand it because they're, you know, they're constantly in the process of building 
whatever it is they need. And it just happened that Henry and the cow problem exactly fit into something that they needed. They had a little trio of books and that was gonna be the third one. So they, we never quite hit it off. And after uh, I began to get some nice reviews in the Globe and Mail and so on and so forth for these books, I did get an extremely nice note from the publisher uh, of Henry and the Cow Problem saying, you know, if you ever wanna write another children's book, um, and I thought about doing it and, you know, my, my mind isn't just isn't there anymore. I think it's, it, you know, it's, it's here with these books. Yeah. What is the name of the little town that you grew up in? Will you share that with us? I will, because everyone in the Kootenays right away goes, oh, we know you're talking about Queens Bay. <laughs> King's Cove, Queen's Bay. Oh, very clever, very clever. <laughs> well, and you know how this happened. I mean, uh, I, I, I'm not sorry, but it was all about how the books began in the first place. So there is a little origin story. And the origin story is that, first of all, I knew I could never, ever, ever write a whole entire grown up full book. But I was going to retire. This is in 2012. I was going to retire in two years. I was 64 then. And they say, don't ever think you're going to write a book when you retire because you're not. So don't burden yourself with that idea. Just carry on and prepare to retire. And I thought, oh, no, I do want to retire and write books. And I kind of knew, knowing how I am about things like weightlifting or something that I'm always going to do it tomorrow. And I could just imagine my retirement years going by with me. Yeah, I'm going to start tomorrow. So I made a decision at that moment that I think was uh, uh, in retrospect momentous. I decided I had to, I was a principal of, of a major Vancouver high school by then. And I had to be at work, you know, like I like to get there at 7.15 or so. And so um, I was waking up at five o'clock in the morning and writing 400 words. I had no notion of what this was gonna be, but I set myself the task of writing 400 words every single morning, five days a week, no matter what. And I, I literally had no idea. I remember sitting there on that first day and I thought about that house where I was a very small child, which was my mother's favorite house, uh, which was on her lips on her deathbed was that darn house uh, because she loved it more than any other house uh, that we'd ever lived in and maybe that she'd ever lived in in her life. And um, I thought of her walking into that house the first time and knowing it was gonna be hers. And if you think about, uh, uh, you know, death, uh, uh, um, sorry, a killer in King's Cove, that's really how it opens, you know. So in my mind, it was a much younger my mother, uh, and it was going to be just after the war, as opposed to 1950 or whenever it was that she, she bought that house. I was very small. Um, and I just started there. So I think... I don't remember what the original question was, but oh, um, what was the original question? Just the name of the town. Oh, the name of the town, yes. So I had no interest in, I didn't think I was gonna write about that. Uh, I had no particular interest in the 1940s, to be honest. I always thought the 1930s was much more fashionable <laughs> and the 1950s. 
Um, and, uh, but once I got started, so every single day I'd read my 400 words and do the next one. And so then I decided, well, you know, if this ever goes anywhere, I can't call the place Queens Bay. So I called it Kings Cove. And then to keep my mind clear, I decided I need the same initials uh, for this character as my mother's LW. And so there we go, there was the name. And you know, that's how the thing got built. And then once it sort of was going and there were books, I realized, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I made a mistake doing that or not. I mean, you know, it's a tiny community and there is a tiny little bit of um, Lane Winslow tourism going on there now, you know, where people are kind of driving up the lake to have a look and going down to look at the where the wharf was and so on and so forth. So, you know, you don't want to ruin the lives of a small community either. So that's how I ended up changing the name. But no one was fooled. <laughs> <laughs> no way, nobody in the Kootenai area. <laughs> no, definitely not. Well, thanks for joining us tonight. My pleasure. It was, uh, it was uh, great. And uh, can I just say one more thing? Yes, sure. Uh, uh, I uh, just wanted to comment. I get an awful lot of letters from readers. They go onto my website, they see that they can send me a little note. Uh, sometimes they're, you know, saying you made a mistake on page 497 and that's <laughs> always useful. Um, and I'm happy to get the feedback for sure because we definitely act on it. Again, wonderful publisher. I can just send them a note saying, look, there is a mistake on page 497. And, uh, you know, in the next printing, it gets it gets fixed. And, um, uh, I, I, I've actually, you know, I like the synergy between myself and the readers. I always answer the notes if I get them. Um, and sometimes they're really useful. Like uh, the reason this book exists at all is because uh, a retired historian sent me a note saying how much she enjoyed the kind of total quality of the books, you know, the language and so on. She recognized it as being, um, you know, pretty accurately from that period. And I actually worked very hard on making sure I have the language right. Uh, because it's very easy for little modernisms to slip in, and I find them very jarring when I find them in historical fiction. Uh, and, and then we got to talking back and forth in our letters about uh, rural one-room schoolhouses, which are a, a huge feature of, you know, the historical Canadian educational system. And she had lots of really good kind of academic papers that have been written about them. And so that's how this book came to be. You know, she, I said, yeah, send me the papers. And I got to read a lot about the lives of the women who went to teach in those schools, often in communities far from their own, often they were alone and had to depend on the goodwill of that community that they've gone into, you know, farming community, mining community, whatever it happens to be. And uh, more recently, someone wrote me from Manitoba uh, and he's an expert on uh, vintage uh, motorcycles. And he wanted me to put Darling on a motorcycle. And I said, no, I don't think I'm going to put Darling on a motorcycle, but Constable Terrell looks fabulous on a motorcycle. We'll put him on one. And so now I've got someone who can tell me all about what those bikes look like, how they work, if I need bits and pieces 
about anything with the bike, there's someone who can who can do that. And someone recently, just very recently, wrote me and talked about um, they have a very traditional old printing press uh, just near me here, uh, you know, in the next municipality. And if I ever wanted to see the mechanics of a very old world traditional printing press that would be recognizable in the 1500s, never mind the 1940s, um, you know, I should come and visit. And these often spur uh, great ideas that I can incorporate. So I just want to put a plug out to the readers because they're absolutely fantastic. There, I've said my Thank people. you so much. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, have, have a good night, Iona. Great. Thank you very, very much. It was a great pleasure. And keep warm, everybody. There. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye